Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia Freaker, Senior Content Producer and Editor of the Booktopian blog, and joining me today is our Lifestyle Books Category Manager, Shanu Prasad. Uh, our guest today is quite special, someone that Shanu and I are very eager to chat to. He's the acclaimed Artistic Director of the Australian Ballet, having been part of the company since 1983, first as a member of the ballet school, then as a senior and principal artist and has also just released a memoir called Saw, A Life Freed by Dance. Today's guest is, of course, David McAllister. Welcome, David. Thanks, Olivia. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, Shanu and I are quite big ballet fans. We've both read and loved Saw. It's a wonderful read. It's available now. Um, let's get right into it. First, so yeah. first of all, <laughs> what made you want to write this memoir? And how did you start? Um, Look, I've got to say, it was something that sort of came via um, the publisher, Thames and Hudson. They sort of contacted me to say whether I was interested in doing a memoir. And um, I wasn't, I didn't really think my life was that interesting, actually. <laughs> and so um, they, they did a bit of sort of talking to me about it. And look, in, in short term, they sort of appealed to my vanity in a way. Um, but I did say at the time, look, I just don't think I've got time, you know, with everything that was ramping up towards my departure from the Australian Ballet. And so that's when they introduced me to um, the idea of working with Amanda Dunn to actually do the book. Mm -hmm. And that all of a sudden made it much more possible. And I knew Amanda as an amazing um, writer, journalist through the age. Um, mm -hmm. And she'd written a lot about dance, so I knew she knew the, the subject. Um, and then we met and we started talking and it just sort of all fell into place from there. And then from then on, it was really a different experience to what I thought it was going to be. I felt it was almost like going through therapy because, you know, you delve <laughs> back into parts of your life that you had sort of just locked away or not locked away, but, you know, just put away. And, you know, you in, a, in all of our busy lives, I think you're always sort of looking forward and thinking what's going to happen next. So it was a really interesting chance to dig back into the memory pool and um, and it turned out to be a really enjoyable experience. And um, Amanda would give me sort of writing tasks. So I would, um, I did about, I, I wrote a lot about my early years and my first ballet classes. And, um, and obviously mm -hmm. we did a lot of, um, she recorded a lot of conversations as well. And I also wrote a lot about the personal things like the personal relationships. So um, yeah, so it was, it was a great project that I didn't feel that I have to tackle all by myself because I've never written a book. Um, but I really enjoyed the process of sort of cataloging and writing and, and the editing process, which was like digging into a whole new world that I'd never experienced before. Hmm. Was there a lot of change to the structure of the book? You imagined in, when you started to how it ended up in the final, um, you know, the final finished out there in the world edition? It really was actually, and I got, I guess, you know, I, I'm a big fan of biographies. I love what reading memoirs and biographies. So mm -hmm. I assumed that, you know, it would sort of be chronological, but um, Amanda sort of said, no, we need to get a hook to get people in to you know, start. So that was the, the prologue really. And um, mm -hmm. that was her idea. And then we went back to a more sort of linear sort of time frame, which is what I thought it would be like. Um, and, you know, it's not until you actually get into this that you realise that there's a whole lot of your life that you've never really talked about. So that was sort of not confronting, but it was just really interesting to think, gosh, 
what are people going to think when they read this? <laughs> Especially the 77 dancers in the Australian ballet currently. So um, <laughs> sort of an interesting um, feeling. But yeah, I guess once, once we had the structure, which I think, you know, I can honestly say Amanda was pretty much in the forefront of that, then filling in was, was so much easier and, and it was really enjoyable. And, and as I say, it was, it was fun to relive some of the moments and, you know, interesting to relive others. <laughs> Ah, yes, I can, I can imagine. Uh, when I was reading the book, I was like, I can't imagine that you just managed to fit so much into, you know, mm. into your life and just every experience after every experience was just, um, you know, quite, quite incredible. Uh, uh, so I think that actually leads Liv into her next, next question, which was beautifully, beautifully done. <laughs> um, I was wondering, David, um, your career with the Australian Ballet has obviously spanned over 30 years, incorporating like dance, choreography, artistic direction. How did you find the creative process of writing compared to that of dance? It was a really different experience. And, um, and I guess while I was dancing, I never really did any sort of text-based writing or even, you know, working on a computer because pretty much as a dancer, your whole life is spent in a studio looking at yourself in the mirror and perfecting, you know, movement so um to actually switch over into that sort of other side of the brain i guess i'd had a bit of experience with writing because i write all of my um program forwards and you know borings well, i shouldn't say boring uh, but you know important sort of document stuff like board papers and stuff so i had done a little bit of that but to uh, writing in a more creative way i guess you know not that i was making it up but um you know, in that sort of way that people are going to read for enjoyment was a different style, I think. And um, and so I, 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 I guess I tried to write when I was doing the bits that I was writing as if I was just talking. And, um, and look, I've got to say, English was... I mean, I loved English at school and I loved creative writing and doing all that sort of stuff. But growing up, I was a bit of a remedial reader. and um, And so I think I came to the writing um, through a different sort of path. Um, and, and I felt very confident that knowing that Amanda was such a beautiful writer that, you know, anything that I was going to add would be sort of updated and, um, and beautified mm. and, and made. Uh, I, I tend to do this thing where I write backwards um, and my EA tells me all the time, you know, I put too many um, ideas into a sentence and I tend to flip it around the wrong way. So she's always editing me as I go. So the editing process wasn't un that unusual. <laughs> I think we've had some, some, ex some experience with that. <laughs> yeah. um, what I do love about it is that it's immediately obvious that you have this real appreciation for beauty and wonder, like right down to the small details. And it's obvious like, like you begin the book from your childhood in Perth and like you talk about dressing up as a child, you know, the oil of your land that your mother used, the wallpaper in your Melbourne flat, that kind of thing, um, which is just wonderful to read and kind of experience the world of, you know, a creative child through your eyes. Um, it must have been an incredible relief to you that your parents let you foster that and let you pursue your dreams of dance. Yeah. Look, I don't think they had any option because <laughs> I was going to do it no matter what. And I think there were times where they would both look at each other, looking at me going, what the hell is this child? Um, I was always lost in this sense of creativity and make-believe and, and it was when I was happiest. And I talk about when I go to school, how it was such a shock 
to leave that behind and into you know a much more regimented world. Um, and I guess that's what I loved about going to ballet classes was that I stepped back into that world of you know imagination, but through the lens of a very rigorous sort of training regime, which completely obsessed me. So I sort of found my way of learning and um, becoming more regimented through the escape into the ballet studio, which sounds a bit weird, but, um, and it's so funny because when we were talking um, with Amanda and myself, you know, she kept asking me, what was it like? How did you feel? What were the things you remember from that time? And all of those little details were things that just kept flooding back to me. You know, like I remember when I first walked into the studio, when I did my first ballet class, apart from the sea of girls in little pink leotards, was the sense of, um, you know, the stage at the other end of this hall, which was so beautiful. And, you know, being in Perth, the light that sort of came into the room and the fact that the light illuminated all this dust because it was a pretty old, dusty um, place. Um, and the magic of that sort of, it always stayed with me, you know. Um, I think images and, um, you know, smells and feelings are the sorts of things that really illuminate your memory. And so I guess I tried to add some of that into the, into the book so people sort of could imagine that feeling as well. I really loved the section. Uh, it was a little, you know, section when you when you first went to class, and your your parents were like, "Well, we'll just see how long this, you know, this phase lasts for." And so they didn't buy you real ballet shoes. They just they made you wear the, the jiffies. And um, I, I I remember that from my own uh, childhood, um, not having just the right uh, ballet leotard. When I went to my first class, I had like a pink swimsuit, <laughs> yeah. and just feeling that this is this is no 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 no. I'm doing ballet. I need to have the right ballet leotard. <laughs> so uh, when was it that you were allowed to move from the jiffies to your first actual ballet shoes? Look, I think it was about a month in. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I certainly wore the jiffies for quite a number of weeks. Um, but when, when it was looking a bit more sort of like we were in for the long haul, I got my beautiful new, um, I think they were Paul Wright ballet shoes and they were made out of that beautiful soft kid leather. But mm -hmm. um, and they were really tiny. I, I kept them for a while and then I threw them out because it was like they were, you know, had holes in them and stuff. But um, it was it was a pretty special. I remember the step up from Jiffy's to the ballet shoes were a big event. And yep. and I think it was my parents' point of, you know, giving in. <laughs> they realised that it was, you know, they were in this for the longer haul. Many, 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 many pairs of ballet shoes um, oh, to yeah. come after that. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Another thing about sore is it's just like just learning of the word jiffies, which I had to go and Google. Um, <laughs> like it was just such an interesting insight into the world of ballet because I mean I did tap and jazz growing up, but I always looked at ballet and thought, oh, that looks really interesting, but also just so much going on with it. So what was really interesting was just seeing of like getting that back insight into the Australian ballet in particular, just like the politics and the structure and the hierarchy and how you navigated that as a first year dancer, especially when that all began to be kind of upheaved. Mm. It was yeah. it was a really interesting time to join the company too, because I feel like um, when I was at school and the strike went happened, um, I always you know tell people I think it was the beginning of the modern version of the Australian ballet. I think prior mm. to that, it was very much the pioneering years of the company and and it was that sort of schism between management and the dancers which really turned the corner into building a very much more modern 
um, environment for the for the company and and you know the next phase I guess of the development. And so I was really lucky to have been there at that time and to see the changes, you know, mm. from when I joined where, you know, it was very hierarchical and, you know, you knew your place and you didn't sort of step out of your place. And it was Maynard Gilgood who really sort of challenged all of that and turned it around uh, or, you know, modernised that relationship thing where everyone, you know, you were all dancers and you were all equal to your ability. And, um, and that came with growing pains and... Um, and I, I guess I was lucky I was one of the young ones, so I wasn't that ingrained into the system. Um, and, you know, it meant because she really pushed young dancers that we got a lot of opportunities. And, um, and I think we were seen as threatening to some of the older dancers. Um, and then, of course, you know, over time, you know, dance careers, we like to joke that a dance career is like a, you know, a year in dance is like a dog's life. You know, it's a year. <laughs> you live seven years in one year of your career. So, you know, very quickly I became one of the senior dancers and then, you know, you start that feeling of the dancers coming behind and how, you know, that affects you. So, yeah, it's, that, that sense of evolution within the organisation is, is, is something that I guess I talk a bit about. And also for me, I mean, I was lucky enough to be there and work with every single artistic director before I was appointed. So I, I sort of know where all the bodies are buried, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was actually one of the most uh, amazing parts because we, you know, it, and the Australian Ballet, as we know, we, you know, was only established in the, um, in the what, 1962? 1962, um, so, that's right, yeah. yeah. So they're really, you know, you really have had that, um, like an experience that no one else is going to be able to say that they've had, you know, it really is a unique experience. And I think for anyone that's all at all been interested in ballet, um, and you know the world of ballet in Australia, they're they're going to find so uh, so much more information than they they might have uh, remembered from. Because I remember reading the news, and I remember the big the big deal, um, you know, with the I think towards um, Maynard Gilgood's leaving, and then Ross Stratton, the next um, artistic director coming in, you know, and all that kind of you know stuff in the papers mm -hmm. about about you know dancers being upset and you know what's going to happen with this, you know with him coming in from America and all this kind of stuff. And so um, one of the great things about the book is that you really do give a real, a, a real insider's view into, um, into what it was like for the, for the actual dancers at the time. Um, so I, I really appreciate that you've, uh, that you've uh, have taken the time to write that into, um, into your memoir as well. Um, just going back a little bit though, um, what do you think it was about, um, about Perth in the time when you were there that managed to, you know, produce, you know, when, when you went to the Australian Valley, you went with uh, Stephen Heathcote. Um, yep. Paul Mercurio. Mercurio and, and Darren um, Exactly. So you have, and there was only, what, 18, 18 boys in the Australian Ballet, like in your in your uh, In that class. intake, yeah. In that there intake. were 18 boys and four and from four Perth. from WA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was That's a high, it was a high proportion. Yeah. Um, so what was happening there? Do you know? I think, look, we, at that time, I think in Perth, there was great teachers um, and, you know, some, there's a, things always seem to go in waves and it just happened that that period of time, there was a lot of good boys. And interestingly, Stephen, Paul and Darren all knew each other and had done, you know, things together. Oh. And I was the one who was sort of, they always used to joke that I must have been locked in a cupboard somewhere because... <laughs> It wasn't until the ballet uh, audition, ballet school audition, that I was sort of turned out. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing time. And, and I think for me, great in one way to be able to go with, you know, other guys from Perth, but also 
when I first saw them there at the audition, I thought, oh my God, you know, I'd auditioned two years before and, and had been accepted, but my parents wouldn't let me go. And I thought, now when the you know pressure's on and I really want to go, I'm not going to get chosen. But luckily we all did. So it was, I think Perth is an interesting place too, because it is so isolated and you do feel isolated growing up in Perth. And, and so I remember um, reading a, a thing about Rudolf Nureyev where he said, you know, he was in Ufa and it was in the middle of nowhere in Siberia. And he thought if he just worked really hard, eventually someone would find him. And that's pretty much how I felt in Perth. So it was, it was a place that I think, you know, you could, you could just um, get lost in your own world. So I was very excited when I did actually get to audition for the ballet school both times and, and, and know that there were other guys there and that we were all sort of heading over together. Yeah, I mean, there must have been, you, you do talk a lot in the book about, you know, the experience you had um, at school and, you know, I think, I think a very common experience, unfortunately, for boys mm. that um, decide to do ballet then. And I think you're saying even, you know, even now, there's still this really strange, strange misconception that somehow doing ballet makes you less masculine, even though you know that most boys could never do half of the, <laughs> the things that uh, dancers can actually do. Um, you, every time you see any kind of, you know, thing with footballers trying to trying to do ballet it's a quite amusing yeah. um so how how um how did you feel like how what was that feeling when you when you discovered that there were like was it really at that audition that was really the first time that you felt hey maybe there are other um you know maybe I'm not so strange um or did you you know was it your family that helped you earlier kind of like absorb sort of you know I think you talk about your sister a lot um yeah your sister Di, one of you sort of a confidant of yours, um, to try and, you know, how, how, how did your family and, and you know, how, how did that kind of work? Sorry, this is a terrible question. Look, I had a big family because, you know, we were Catholic, so <laughs> there was a lot of us. And, um, and I think that was a real bonus for me because, you know, there was so many people at home. I didn't have to go searching for friends. And, you know, I was so excited about learning ballet initially. I told everyone and, of course, then realised what a terrible social mistake I'd made. So, um, yeah, school wasn't a great time for me and I had a few very close friends who really supported me. But I think it was my family that actually made a lot of that a whole lot better. And my parents, you know, especially my mum, because, you know, she was on the coal face, you know, when I come home, you know, upset about things. And she was just very pragmatic and very, you know, she didn't sort of get all you know, emotional and funny about it. She just sort of said, you know, very sen sensibly, well, just ignore them and they'll go away. Which, you know, at the time I thought, well, that's not really help that helpful. But I think in the end, what she was doing was saying, you know, this will pass, you know, as they, as they say now. And, and, and she was absolutely right. Um, but it was, it was really great to have that, that really hard rock of support around the home. Um, and, and I've got to say that the friends who I had, you know, at school were incredible supporters because, you know, they certainly didn't pick an easy road being my friend. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't really until year 11 and 12 that I realised once the girls came, because, you know, all boys schools are very, um, you know, tribal in a way. And when the girls came, everything um, became much more agreeable. And, you know, we were at that age, you know, 15, 16, where all of a sudden the boys were much more interested in the girls than interested in me. So that was really fantastic. I was very happy with that. Um, and, you know, those last two years of school became quite productive and, and enjoyable. So, um, but yeah, I, I found the, um, 
the decision to do what I did was not a hard one. You know, I didn't struggle with it because I was so passionate about it. There was no alternative. And I just thought that everyone else was a little bit sort of weird that they couldn't get how exciting and, and fabulous this was <laughs> to be a dancer. Yeah, that's the incredible thing um, that really comes across in Soar is your intense love and passion for ballet. And you write about it with such love, um, even though it made you the target of some of that bullying and ire. Um, but, and, but you also at the same time didn't shy away from writing about how much of a toll that ballet can take on you both physically and emotionally. Um, I was wondering if you thought about how you would achieve that balance of honesty while writing your book. Um, sorry, I keep doing that, don't I? Um, <laughs> I felt that if I was going to do this, I had to do it honestly. I couldn't just gloss over and say, I mean, first of all, it would have been really boring if I just said, you know, all the lovely things that happened and, you know, I went to ballet and it was all fabulous and then I went home and went to bed. You know, it was sort of like <laughs> there was more to it than that. And I think for every, you have, to, you have to experience the bad times to know what the good times are like. And equally, when the good times are so fantastic, you know, you've got to know that it's not always like that, you know. I think we, we have that thing of, you know, when we look at people's lives, especially when you don't know some of the backstory, you know, it can look like it's all just, you know, glorious and people just get this, you know, easy ride on the conveyor belt to happiness. And um, I don't think anyone has that experience, even the most successful or, you know, seem, seemingly charmed lives. There's always, you know, the, the, the balance of the darker side. And, and, and I guess for me, it was also in this book, I just thought if I'm going to talk about myself, I need to talk about it warts and all. And I'm not one of those people that likes to blow my own trumpet. So, you know, I wanted to be really honest about my, my shortcomings as well shortcomings being you know being short um not just you know say i was amazing and i was fabulous and you know i was so successful because it's it's never really like that and it's also interesting to think about that in terms of how much ballet culture itself has changed um particularly in terms of the pressures that would be placed on dancers to look a certain way you know to not be short to not have you know big noses or whatever um and it's incredible that how you talk about that you had this determination to prove them wrong, to show that there is room for that kind of physical diversity. Um, what are the things that you think has fostered that change in ballet culture um, from the early 80s to now? I think just um, society. Ballet is mm -hmm. always a great, um, greatly influenced and, and is a sort of in some ways a mirror up to society. And so, you know, in the 80s, if you look in, you know, the fashion world or just generally, you know, it was all about Jane Fonda doing keep fit videos and everyone being thin, you know, it was, and, and there wasn't that, that lens, I guess, of wellness and, um, and health that I think we've, you know, we've come to more recently. So it was just all very external. It was about how you looked, how thin you were, how tall you were, how talented you were. But the talent sort of came after the visual. And look, ballet is a very aesthetic art form. I mean, you know, let's face it, it's, you know, it is, it does have quite a rigorous, um, you know, aesthetic and what you need to fit into. And it's not even just, you know, um, the, the way you look, it's, it's also what you physically can do. You know, you need to be externally rotated. You need to have very good, um, flexible, you know, feet and joints. And 
So, I mean, there's a whole lot of rigors that you have to jump through um, to just be a ballet dancer. But I think what's happened more recently is that as society has, has accepted more change and more diversity, so has ballet. And, you know, when I joined the company, everyone was Anglo-Celtic. I mean, there was no... And if you weren't, you looked Anglo-Celtic. Like, you know, you may have a background, you know, a Greek or Italian or... But, you know, you, you had that European sort of look. Um, and the first dancer that I remember being in the company who was non-European, um, the, the word was, I mean, she came from a, um, you know, Singaporean background and, and, you know, it was sort of said to her face, oh, well, you don't look too Asian, you know? And, um, and that to me was horrifying, even at that time. Um, but now, you know, people who come and see the ballet sometimes say to me, oh, the company's very, um, you know, multicultural. And I sort of go, are they? I don't even notice. It's sort of like, you know, we have, we have dancers who are from China, Japan. Um, we have, I mean, bulk, the bulk of the company are Australian residents. But, you know, they have Malay Chinese, they have Filipino, they have, um, you know, Vietnamese, uh, uh, all sorts of different, you know, uh, ethnic mixes, which is what Australia is. And it's so weird because I just don't even notice that the company looks you know, different ethnically or, and, and look, physically I do notice because I do go and see other companies and I realise, oh, you know, our guys are very healthy looking and they look fit and, you know, the women look like women and the men look like men, um, not in a, you know, in a sort of stereotypical way, but like, you know, the, they all have strong, you know, um, fit looking bodies um, but there's still that, you know, aesthetic of line and, and, you know, an appealing sort of ability to make, you know, lovely shapes. But they're not, they don't all look like they need to go home and have a good meal, which is <laughs> something that I think is really important because, you know, to do what you need to do to be a ballet dancer, you have to be able to have the muscles in your body to actually achieve it. And that's what I guess we were all trying not to do back in the 80s. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's actually amazing. Some of the stories you tell in the book, I think one of the one of the ones I was like, oh my goodness, how times have changed has got to be about the smoking and just smoking like mm. during or just after rehearsals or having like a little um, a little tray, like a, I can't remember what they're called now. I just don't know. Ashtray. Ashtray, that's the one. Um, yeah, just, just there for the dancers just to, you know, put their, put their cigarettes into. And just the thought of, the thought of that now is just... It's absolutely, it's absolutely amazing how much has changed in, in you know, you know, 30, 40 years um, in, in thinking. And I think, I think you talk about, right, that <clears throat> when you were, you know, a younger dancer, that the, um, it was about performing all the time and performing through your injuries. None of this kind of, you know, sports science that we have now that explains that if you take two days off now, you might actually be, you know, fine. Whereas mm. you, if you don't take those two days off now, you might end up with, you know, a three month a three-month yeah. recovery time or something. Yeah. So, um, I think that just some of those stories were just, were just unbelievable. And what, what you guys danced through <laughs> was like, wow. Well, I think also we just didn't have the knowledge that we do now. And, yeah. you know, I think, I mean, sadly, there are still places around the world where they have a similar sort of, you know, approach, but just because it's, that's the way it always was. And, you know, I think you have to break that. Um, that chain, you know, to be able to go, okay, well, that's the way it was when we were doing it, but now there's a better way. And interestingly, you know, our medical artistic health team are recognised around the world as, as, you know, groundbreaking and world's best practice. 
And it really is just because we've gone, there's a better way of doing this. And, yeah. and you know, it's a bit like, you know, when we talk about climate change, listen to the scientists, you know, the yeah. scientists know best. And that's what we've sort of done. And now, interestingly, people talk about the Australian um, approach as opposed to being, you know, this is the medical best oh. practice approach. So, um, so we're really proud of that. I was going to say, yeah, that's definitely something to be proud of. I mean, is that, I mean, that's why David Hulberg, who is actually taking over after you, that's why he came to Australia, right, when he injured himself? Was so that's that he right, yeah. Was go through he, the program here? Yeah, he um, had a, um, a very nasty injury that then he had a surgery for that then was, you know, pretty tricky. And, um, and yeah, he, he basically came to us with a one-way ticket and said, you know, not you're my last hope, but, you know, but, if yeah. anyone's going to fix this, you are. And he yeah. submitted, not submitted, that's a terrible, you know, he, he completely got on board with the yeah. process and it took him 15 months. I mean, I think a lot longer than he ever thought it was going to, but, you know, he mm. got back to full dancing and, and I think in the process got to understand the company and the environment and, you know, thankfully it's led to his um, appointment as my successor, which is brilliant. There you go, from David to David. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, oh, speaking of the, the uh, artistic, being the artistic director, um, how you came to be the artistic director of the Australian Ballet. Now that is a story uh, of very much interest in, um, in the book. Uh, do you want to just tell us, not give too much away because, you know, everyone wants to read the book, but just tell us a little bit about what that, uh, what that time in your, in your life was like. Yeah, it was around the time that I was, I was about 30, 36. I think I just turned 36. And, um, and I was thinking, you know, there's going to be life, you know, I have to think about life after dance. Not that I wanted to, but it was something I had to think about. And so I started doing an arts administration course through Deakin, actually, Deakin University off campus. And um, it was through doing that and then Ross Stretton announcing that he was leaving the company, it sort of led me towards this idea of, oh, maybe, you know, maybe that's something that I'd be involved in. And, and it was mentioned and in the press. And, and I guess I'd had a bit of a plan, a long-term plan that, you know, I thought eventually one day, I'd like to do that. And so I guess the stars aligned and I applied really just to be, you know, seen for me to be, go through a process like that, just as for experience, you know, cause I'd never auditioned for a job. And I, I think I say in the book, you know, the two minute Don Q variation wasn't going to cut it. Um, I was just imagining that. Can you imagine <laughs> before the board? <laughs> let me, let me show you my credentials. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to do my variation from act three of Don Quixote. Um, so it was. It, it started off as a as an experience of discovery, and it turned up to be, you know, my um, future. So it was, yeah, it was a very interesting time. And I think I also say in the book, if I had have known then what I know now, I I look back and think, my God, you know, the um, ignorance is bliss when you yeah. when you're in that sort of situation. <laughs> but you know, if I if I did know more and hadn't applied, I think I would have always regretted it. Yeah, absolutely. I want to focus for a moment, um, continuing on that theme, I want to focus on, for a moment on the title of the book, which is Saw, A Life Freed by Dance, because I think it's very telling. Um, so this is a memoir about ballet, but, but it's also about your own personal journey, you know, career-wise, but also towards accepting your sexuality. And the interesting thing is how your dance career and your personal life have gone hand in hand and been kind of so inextricably linked. Mm. Uh, what do you think your life journey would, might have looked like if you'd never discovered ballet? 
Oh, that's such a good question because I feel <laughs> like ever since I was, the, I mean, my first memory of myself is dancing. So I don't mm-hmm. imagine what my life would have been like without ballet. And, um, and I think it's so sort of crafted, I guess, in the way the person I was, all of the, you know, crazy things as well as the, the good things. So um, I, I sort of can't imagine. I think I probably would have been very frustrated. I think I would have always been searching for that thing that I could never find um, because pretty much as soon as I, you know, I found dance, it just made everything else make sense. So um, obviously with my, you know, my grappling with my sexuality, that was, that was a part of it. But I think that was also linked with dance. I mean, you know, for me, you know, princes always have swans or princesses, you know, and that was sort of what I thought. And my, you know, growing up in a Catholic family in a fairly religious sort of environment, I thought that was, you know, just going to be what happened. And, but it was when I realised that I was drawn to, you know, to, well, to Kelvin, which, you know, happens in the prologue, um, that it sort of really set me on a bit of a, not a, not a path of discovery, because I don't think I actually really discovered a lot about myself until I was much older. Um, but then, you know, later in my life, having relationships with wonderful women who, you know, really um, validated that, um, that my, my belief that, you know, that sort of normal life was what I wanted, to the point where I thought that that's where I was heading and then, you know, eventually just went, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I think there's a problem here. Houston, we have a problem. Um, <laughs> and, but, you know, I didn't really admit all of that to myself until, you know, I was in my 40s. So, I mean, you're a bit of a slow learner when it comes to personal life. I think I invested so much time in my career, I was just putting everything else on hold. Mm. Um. You've also written a lot of your vulnerability and insecurity into this book and, you know, about never quite feeling cool enough or comfortable in yourself. Like, obviously, you're a comfortable dancer. Um, But what's beautiful is that this is a hopeful story, um, a hopeful book, one in which you do triumph and you do get your rom-com moments. Um, We're running kind of short on time, so I just wanted to ask, what do you think you would say to your younger self just starting out in the Australian Ballet School? I think I would have said don't... Um, don't always have your eye so far on the future. Enjoy the moment because I think that's the thing I've learned through my life. You know, don't be so worried about what everyone else thinks about you. Don't be so worried about where you're heading. Just spend a few moments every so often just enjoying the moment and, and being, you know, where you are. And probably, you know, I would have taken a few more personal risks as a younger person. Not risks, but, you know, I, I think I probably should have explored my sexuality earlier. But look, having said all of that, I wouldn't change anything. I've, I've, you know, I've really had a fantastic time and I've learned a lot and I've experienced, you know, well beyond anything that I ever thought I would in my life. So, I mean, and this book is part of it. I've got to say, I never would have thought in a million years I would have written a memoir, even a couple of years ago. So it's all been a rich and, and wonderful experience. And, you know, the title saw sort of made me laugh a little bit at first because, you know, we, we t- t- jumped around with a whole lot of things. And I actually said we could also call it SORE, S-O-R-E. <laughs> 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 but, but I'm really happy with, you know, the way that it's come out. And I do think it's, you know, it's genuinely um, reflects my experience, I guess. 
Fantastic. Yeah. Can we can we ask one last question? Because I always <laughs> I always make the recordings go longer because we never want to stop talking because <laughs> there's so much more that we can talk about. Um, I don't know. You, it, no one can because you know this is um, uh, just audio. But I literally went through the entire book. And, uh, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> stickered everything that I thought was. I was like, oh, I've got to ask about this. Um, so you know, if you've got another four hours, no, no, kidding. But my, yeah. my last question is: Could you just um, give us a little? Something, one of a, a dancing anecdote from the book, some part of your career in um, that was just something that was just really memorable for you um, that you really are excited to uh, tell everyone about um, through the book. Sure. Um, gosh. I know it's hard because there's so many. There's so many. <laughs> I think you met like every single person in the ballet world. Um, <laughs> that was anyone in the ballet world pretty much over your, um, over your career. But um, yeah. if you can... Just, just pick one. Just one. Pick one. Okay. Um, I'm tossing up. Sorry. The two things that sort of stick out as far as being um, a dancer, I think, was the Princess Diana experience because, you know, at yes, that time, Princess Diana was the most famous woman in the world. And we were there just after the, uh, the Andrew Morton book had been published. Oh, wow. So, you know, yeah. it, was, it was such a crazy time to be, you know, having the Princess of Wales sort of come. And, you know, we were all told we weren't allowed, we weren't allowed to mention the Andrew Morton book. Um, but it made me realise, and the thing I think I learned all the way through my career with these extraordinary people that you just never thought you'd ever meet, was um, she was such a genuinely wonderful woman like you know even though she lived this very rarefied life and you know she had her ups and downs as well ultimately her talent was that she just made you feel like you were the most interesting person she'd ever met and it was a gift I mean it was an incredible gift and to having danced the performance that I was really happy with and you know then meeting her and being sort of all like you know completely tongue-tied and couldn't get two words out and then having the opportunity of actually sitting with her and having a a normal conversation, if you can have a normal conversation with Princess Diana. Um, it was one of those nights, I, I remember going home and just not being able to sleep. It was just like, I cannot believe that just happened. <laughs> and I guess the other time like that as a director was when I met Barack Obama at the, um, the conference they had in Brisbane uh, with all of the world leaders. And, you know, there was Angela Merkel and all these crazy people that, you know, we all sort of said hello to. But Barack Obama was the same. I mean, you know, he was just the most genuine, gentle, friendly, humorous, fantastic person. And I mean, no, I'm going to talk to him for about three minutes max. But, um, but, you know, it just makes me, it always reminded me, no matter how famous or important people are, they're still just another human being. And that's always the most... Um, uh, a life-affirming experience, you know, when you have these experiences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I suppose they're, they're two of those moments that you just think, wow, mm -hmm. that little daggy boy from Perth who, you know, no one <laughs> liked at school, bingo. Who would have thought? Yeah. It's and just the most incredible story. Oh, sorry, Shani. Oh, no, no, I know. It's just the most incredible story and I know we need to wrap up, but I've just got, okay, one, one <laughs> really last question this time, which is mm -hmm. what would you like... Um, people to remember about you and your time in the Australian Ballet? What would you like your legacy um, legacy to be? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> well, as, 
It's interesting when you talk about legacy because um, all the way through my directorship, I always found that such a difficult thing. And I remember having a conversation with Richard Evans about it. He said, you know, you've got to think now, early on, this was my second year in the job, you know, what your legacy will be. And, um, and so now I'm at the end of it. It's sort of interesting to look back. But I, I think what I hope people uh, remember from my time at the ballet company is that it was an environment where people felt they could flourish. Um, it was a place that was creative, dynamic, and um, but also supportive and nourishing. And, you know, often ballet companies can be seen as, you know, pits of um, intrigue and also, you know, competition. And, yep. you know, there's always that in our company as well. But I think within that competition, there's still also a really great respect for each other and for the art form and for the, you know, the work that we do. And, you know, the work always, you know, um, fluctuates. I mean, you know, not every performance is brilliant, not every ballet you commission works, but the fact that there was an environment that people could create and could, you know, perform at their very best and, and you know, evolve in a very supportive environment. I, I think that's what I would like people to think of my time at the ballet and you know and ultimately I wanted to make sure that I left the company in a you know in a strong and you know hopefully better position than I took it on and apart from COVID which is sort of you know given us a bit of the machines um I think it is yeah um well I think that's all we have time for today um thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time to chat with us David it was um, a great pleasure you thank you Thank you, it was, it was a great pleasure for us. Um, and for everyone listening at home, you can order your copy of Saw, A Life Free by Dance um, from booktopia.com.au. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.